0: I am at long last reading this Cascadia classic, Snow Falling on Cedars. And I am going to read a brief section, which is about where I am in the book, so I still have half the book. Please don't ruin it for me. Her mother seemed to know about the gulf that separated how she lived from what she was. And what was she, anyway? She was of this place, and she was not of this place. And though she might desire to be an American, it was clear, as her mother said, that she had the face of America's enemy and would always have such a face. She is Japanese American living on an island. She would never feel at home here among the Hakujin, and at the same time, she loved the woods and fields of home as dearly as anyone could. She had one foot in her parents' home, and from there it was not far at all to the Japan they had left behind years before. She could feel how this country far across the ocean pulled on her and lived inside her despite her wishes to the contrary. It was something she could not deny. And at the same time, her feet were planted on San Pedro Island, and she wanted only her own strawberry farm, the fragrance of the fields and the cedar trees, and to live simply in this place forever. Some of my Mennonite ancestors would have described a similar sort of experience as being in the world, but not of it. That comes from Jesus speaking in John 17 and is connected to a two-kingdom theology of some of our early Mennonite ancestors, professing that our true citizenship is in God's kingdom, God's kingdom, the beloved community, and that our true citizenship transcends all national and otherwise human-made borders. We would pledge allegiance to no nation, no flag, no earthly leader, whatever their title or role or political office they held. Our allegiance would be to God alone, to the way of Jesus, the way of Christ, And when God's law and human law were at odds with one another, we were to follow God's law, even if it meant breaking human law. For example, refusing to serve in the military. And some of our Mennonite ancestors were jailed for their conscientious objection to war, to violence, to killing, to causing harm of any kind. This in but not of the world and true allegiance to God's kingdom led many of our ancestors to not vote as well. And as recently as the 2008 election of President Obama, at least one prominent Mennonite teacher and leader called on Mennonites to abstain from voting to participate to abstain altogether from participating in partisan politics, and to put our hope and our trust in any human leader, even one who seemed so great to so many. That prominent Mennonite teacher and leader was one of my professors at Goshen College, and I did not heed his call. My parents have never voted, and I have never missed an opportunity to vote. So there's some kind of generational shift. And as I've been pondering this, I mean, I've been pondering this a lot, because like my Mennonite ancestors, I, too, do not put my hope and trust in our political system or processes or leaders. Our salvation, I firmly believe, will never come through our government or any government certainly not ours, for reasons that I'm going to, that is illuminated a bit by our scripture reading for this morning. So I'm going to explore Solomon, Solomon's story in 1 Kings for a bit, and then I'm going to circle back to our current situation. Solomon, as you heard in the portion that Nancy read this morning, plays a game of chicken with a baby at stake. He judges a dispute between two women about a baby. And if you didn't notice it on our Facebook page uh, this week, there's a hilarious Seinfeld scene in which Newman judges about a bicycle. And it's exactly from First Kings. He offers to split the bicycle in half. And Elaine says, yeah, do it. And Kramer says, no, 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 let her have the bike. And Newman declares him the true owner of the bike. Straight from First Kings. But here we've got Solomon, two women, they each claim the baby to be theirs. He calls for a sword. He declares the baby to be cut in half. And one woman consents to that bizarre judgment. And the other woman protests, saying she'd rather the baby stay whole, even if not in her care and custody. She's willing to relinquish the baby so that the baby can live. And Solomon then awards the baby to that woman, for the true mother would rather the baby live. Right? Right? Now one wonders if what Solomon would have done with that sword had neither woman protested. Deadly game of chicken he was playing. And it's largely on the basis of this story that Solomon has come to be known as practically synonymous with wisdom. Even if you do think him wise for the judgment in this story of two women and a baby, let me assure you that there's not much else in his life or story that comes remotely close to wisdom. Again this week, we have another remembered hero who is so far from heroic as to be laughable if it weren't so terrifying and absolutely not funny. Yes, he does ask for wisdom from God in his dream in the portion that we heard from Ron this morning. And yes, his game of chicken works out and the rightful mother walks away with her baby. Yet in all the remaining chapters documenting his life and his reign as king, he demonstrates an insatiable appetite for power, for women, for food and opulence and building grand buildings and political assassinations and foreign gods. The list goes on and on. He can't get enough of anything. And that insatiable appetite of his brings the whole nation of Israel to the brink of bankruptcy at the end of his life, and then the kingdom divides into two kingdoms after he dies, because there's such unrest. Now, I do want to acknowledge that Solomon had a great deal stacked against him. He is, after all, the son of David and Bathsheba. Whew! A relationship that, as we recall together last week, was born of sexual assault and the abuse of power. Is it any wonder, then, that Solomon and his siblings are all kinds of messed up? They are all flavors of messed up. One brother raped his own sister. Another brother murdered that brother. They're cunning, maneuvering for the throne. There's jockeying for power. They are a mess. And they were born into a mess. Generational trauma is real, and it is alive in this family's story. So is it any wonder? Now, most biblical scholars agree that the Book of Kings, along with a number of other books, were written during the Babylonian exile. When Israel is looking back over its history, trying to make sense of its current suffering, trying to make some sort of sense of it all. How did they end up captives in Babylonia? And though there's a bit of ambivalence of the various kings along the way, ultimately a strong case can be made that this whole story, kings and others like it, Samuel, Joshua, and Judges, is a screed against the monarchy. And to the concentration of political, economic, and social power into an impenetrable hierarchy. Empire, in other words, according to these writers, is rotten to the core. Israel is looking back at its own history and noticing oh, wait, we asked for a king, we were warned not to ask for a king, we did so anyway, we got a king, we got a string of kings. And we got unfettered, wholly corrupted power. And look where we are now. No wonder. We asked for empire and we got it. So we don't have to make much of a leap to our current situation, do we? Which is one of the things that I'm finding most striking about this fall, um, in which we're spending time in the First Testament, These exceedingly tough and horrifying stories resonate with our own tough and horrifying world. And I'm not sure I would say that it's comforting to know this stuff has been happening for thousands of years. But there's something about this experience of really digging into the First Testament that feels really real and human and relevant. And maybe it's that I'm just feeling more kinship with these ancient People's than I sometimes have. I'm feeling more connection to some of these First Testament stories than before when I've more swiftly maybe dismissed them as old and foreign um, to me in my context. Certainly when we've used the Revised Common Lectionary, I'd be like, ooh, not going to preach that. Let's go preach Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is better. <laughs> oh. But friends, we too have asked for empire, and we got it. We, too, have some pretty unfettered and wholly corrupted power on our hands. And so then, what is the call to us in our own empire? This nation that's built on genocide and land theft and the buying and selling of humans, this nation that is built on white supremacy and manifest destiny and the doctrine of discovery, And this isn't just true on the national level, lest we get too proud about our Seattle context. On Friday, uh, John and I walked the length of Madison Street uh, from bay to lake. You know, it's the only street that connects those bodies of water. Um, We had a little guide and got to read some history along the way. It was very cool. Um, One of the things that I walked past, that we walked past, was Broadmoor Gulf and Gated Residential Community. Which until frighteningly recently had explicitly racist language prohibiting anyone but whites from golfing and living there and even entering its gates. And this led me down a whole path of looking at Seattle as a whole. Broadmoor's not alone in this. uh, Lake City had um, explicitly racist language on the official books for a very long time. Many other neighborhoods did too. Ballard, I know lots of you live in Ballard, uh, Magnolia. Anyway, there's a whole list. And UW has an excellent online resource about these racial restrictive covenants across the city. In fact, they have the largest collection of any city in the US. They've done this good historical analysis of our own history of deeply embedded racism and segregation. It's at the UW Civil Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project. So you can go there and see all kinds of fascinating and terrifying history of our own place, learning the history of our own city. So what do we do when this stuff is rotten to the core? Do we burn it all down? Dismantle the whole rotten-to-the-core empire in which we live locally and nationally? Or do we live in alternative communities and refuse to participate in that wholly corrupted empire around us, live as Jesus' people, and structure our communal life together according to the deeply rooted and radical gospel of just peace? That's an option, and that's a choice that many of our Mennonite ancestors made as I said, pledging their full allegiance to God's kingdom here on earth, in but not of this world. But I've been pondering a variation on that foundational Anabaptist claim as I've been thinking about this generational shift between my parents and I. Uh, Bigger than that. For me, I'm wondering if it's actually more illuminating to say, we are not of this world, but we're in it. the exact same words just flipped the order and it gets at the generational shift i think that i feel I'm not of this world of course we're not i never believed that i was taught from early on up we're not of this world but we're in it i'd be tempted by that separatist radical community vision if it weren't for my power and my privilege Because this rotten-to-the-core empire that we've got does an awful lot of damage to those who have been systemically and generationally marginalized, disenfranchised, boy, more of that happening in our current era than I ever thought possible, dehumanized, and just generally othered. And for example, the draft legislation out of the Department of Health and Human Services this past week that would deny the humanity of transgender and gender nonconforming folks, that's going to do real harm. Not to me. I just live my life right through that one. But to a whole lot of people, including some people I really love. I do feel an obligation to engage our rotten-to-the-core empire. Yeah, I'm going to keep saying that. Our rotten-to-the-core empire enough to do what I can to stop it. To stop that. Not to mention family separations. And meeting asylees arriving at our borders in accordance with international law with weapons drawn. As with many things in my life, my approach tends to be yes and. Yes. Let's live in alternative communities and do things differently than the empire around us. Yes, let's participate in what we're stuck with and make it better, as better as we can. Yes, let's keep alive our vision and our action toward dismantling what is rotten to the core, which is exhausting. I hate it when the answer seems to be yes, do all the things, all the things, do them all. (laughs) It makes me think of one of my favorite quotes, which is from E.B. White, author of such beloved and seemingly disparate classics as Charlotte's Web and along with Strunk Elements of Style. If the world were merely seductive, he wrote, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. (laughs) Torn between a desire to save it and savor it. Torn between a desire to actively dismantle and to just block it out and live alternatively. Yes, I know this tornness. So, circling back to Solomon, the story of Solomon and the screed against the monarchy and kings, it begs us to ask the question how do we engage our own empire? How do we participate and advocate and organize without putting our trust in the always flawed might of our own princes and kings and their dastardly structures and systems of absolutely corrupt and corrupting powers? There is not a singular right answer to these questions, but for my part, for this day with all of you, I look to Jesus' rhythms of directly confronting the unjust political and economic systems of his empire while also withdrawing to pray, feasting at tables of all kinds with all sorts of people, and living in alternative community. All of that stuff was also threatening to the empire not just the direct confrontation so may we too somehow who yes it's all the things that's the answer but may we too somehow find sustaining and sustainable rhythms of confrontation engagement retreat feasting and living the beloved community vision here, and now. May it be so.